You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. More like you this morning, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I can't I can't say for sure because I don't keep track of these things. It would be interesting for pastors to have a baseball card and there would be statistics on the back, but we don't have those. And so um, if, if I were to guess, though, if I had to pick a chapter of the Bible that I point people to the most when they come in for counseling, I would guess it is the chapter that is in front of us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, because when people come in and they say, Aaron, I'm, I'm single and I'm, I'm wondering if I ought to be looking for a spouse. Or they come in and they say, Aaron, I've been widowed and I'm wondering if I should remarry. Or they come in and they say, Aaron, my my marriage is really difficult. Is divorce an option for me? When questions like that are asked, inevitably, I'm going to point them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because it answers so many of our questions. And so this morning, regardless of what situation you find yourself in, whether you're uh, single or widowed, whether you're married, maybe married to an unbeliever, uh, maybe your marriage is difficult, you're considering divorce, maybe you've been divorced, whatever your situation is, I want to be able to provide you with some instruction from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And I want to equip you to be a better counselor to those in your circles so that when people come to you, and they will come to you, and they're going to have questions about their marriage, they're going to have questions about divorce, that in those moments you'll be able to point them to 1 Corinthians 7 and you'll be able to answer their questions from God's Word. And so if you brought your Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've got a digital device with you that you can use to pull up the Scriptures, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, this morning. And so I would just encourage you to search 1 Corinthians 7 ESV, and that way you'll be able to follow right along with me as as we walk our way through the text. And this morning I'm going to begin reading in the 7th chapter with verse 7. And so the Apostle Paul uh, writes this. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And the grass withers and the flower fades But the word of our God will stand forever, and this is God's word to us today. And as Paul begins this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he begins by addressing those who are single, whether it's because they've never been married or because they find themselves widowed. And his instruction to them is to say this. He says, hey, the single life is a good life. In fact, Paul believes the single life is so good that he says there in verse 7, I wish everyone were single like I am. And, and he says, uh, 
But I, I realize that everybody has their own gift. Some have been uh, given the gift of singleness. Some have been given the gift of marriage. And one Christmas, my, uh, my father wanted more than anything else a bike. And my dad's family didn't have anything growing up. He never had a bed. But that Christmas, he really wanted a bike. And he woke up on Christmas and he walks into the living room and there was a bike. And he was thrilled. He couldn't believe it. Until he learned that the bike wasn't for him, but for his cousin who was visiting from out of town. And my father had a gift under the tree for him that morning. He received a gift, but it wasn't the gift he really wanted. It wasn't the bike. He, he got another gift. His cousin got the gift that he wanted. And, and I wonder if some of you this morning kind of feel like my father did. Like you're looking at your life and you're saying, I'm, I'm single and that is not the gift I wanted, Lord. I, I wanted a, a different gift. I wanted the gift they got, not the one you've given to me. Maybe you find yourself widowed and you're saying, how can, how can Paul say that this is good? How can he say that this is a gift? Like my spouse died. I'm grieving that. Like I grieve that every day. I walk around like there is a part of me missing. And I want you to hear me say, if you're in that spot, like you should be grieving that because there is a part of you that's missing. But what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that in the midst of that grief, there is still a good gift from the Lord in singleness to you. And he says, it's, it's good, it's a good life because it's a gift from the Lord. And if you're wondering, like, how can it be a gift? Look at verses 32 through 35. In verse 32, the apostle writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And in those verses, Paul is saying that the single life is a good life. It is a gift because it offers freedom, it offers flexibility, and it offers focus. First, he says it offers freedom from the anxieties and pressures of having to, to please a spouse. Now, I don't know about you people, but I know I am a difficult person to be married to. Uh, in almost 18 years of marriage, Lindsay and I have learned that there are times where I get irritated or maybe I get a little insecure. You know, maybe I'm annoyed at something she's doing. Or uh, maybe I get a little insecure and I'm wondering like, hey, does she still love me the way she used to? And, and I usually think, okay, I can just overlook it. I can move on. And I just kind of bottle it up. And sometimes I can. I can move on. But other times it just sort of festers in there. And what happens is I get all moody and passive aggressive. You know the type, don't you? And my poor wife, she is just left wondering, like, what is wrong with this dude? And what do I have to do to fix it? And so I, I am a difficult person to be married to. And my guess is you are difficult people to be married to as well. And can a spouse give me an amen? Now, you were afraid and hesitant, but let me remind you, you're in church and the pastor asked for it, so you can't get in trouble if you uttered an amen there. So if your spouse is holding it against you, you've been given a pastoral pardon, all right? Uh, we are difficult people to be married to. 
And what Paul says is that the first reason the single life is a good life is because it gives you freedom from that anxiety of wondering, like, what is wrong with this person and what do I have to do to make them happy? Secondly, he says here in verses 32 through 35 that, that it affords us flexibility. In the first few weeks I was here at Hayes Hills, I worked from 7, 8 in the morning until 9 or 10 in the evening every night. And, and I could do that because our house wasn't finished. Uh, Ezra and Lindsay at that time were living in Dallas-Fort Worth with some family while we were waiting on the house. And so I, I didn't need the hours in the evening to devote to my family. And so I had great flexibility in my schedule. And so I scheduled meetings and I was doing all kinds of things because I had flexibility. Because for a couple of weeks, it was, it was almost like I was single. And, and so Paul says that provides, that sort of flexibility provides an incredible focus on the things of the Lord. Notice there in verse 34, he says of the married man, his interests are divided. You see, some of the most difficult decisions in my life come when I see, hey, this is what is best for the church, and this is what is best for my family, and I am torn between the two. And you don't have to be a pastor to face that situation. If you've got a kid who enjoys sports and the sports league they're involved with plays on Sundays, you can find yourself torn. You, your spouse wants to go camping on the weekend and you're out of church, you know, 75% of the time. You, you feel that being torn. Where, where should I be? What should I be doing? And so what Paul says is, look, the single life is a good life because it provides freedom, it provides flexibility, and it provides focus. But it only is a good life if you have the gift. Notice he says there at the end of verse 7, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so the single life is a good life if you have the gift. And some of you are single this morning and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I have the gift? <laughs> And I want you to know you're not stuck waiting to hear God speak to you from a burning bush because you're probably not going to find one of those. The good news is that God has already spoken to you from his word. And so in verses 8 and 9, look at what Paul's counsel is. He says in verses 8 and 9, essentially this, if you are single and you can exercise self-control when it comes to sexual temptation, remain single. If you cannot exercise self-control when it comes to sexual temptation, you ought to get married. That's how you know. Now, to get more practical and more precise, we ought to pair this instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with Paul's instruction to widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because if you just read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it sounds like everybody ought to remain single if at all possible. <laughs> Seems to be what Paul is saying. But in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that's what Paul says to the older widows, the older singles. But to the younger widows, Paul says, you know, you really ought to get remarried. What will be best for you is for you to get remarried so that you don't succumb to temptation. Not just sexual temptation, but other kinds of temptation. Gossip and, and being a busybody and all, all, these, all these things. Paul says, look, you ought to get remarried. And if you're wondering then, okay, well, which category do I fall into? Am I older or am I younger? Where's the line? I want you to know the good news is Paul's line is not the line of my son. My youngest, Abram, is convinced that when I turn 40 later this year, I'm crossing the line and I will be old. And I'm feeling that. 
Uh, But Paul's line is not the age of 40. Paul's line in 1 Timothy 5 is the age of 60. And so Paul says, if if you're under 60, I'd encourage you to look to be married. If you're over 60, I, I would encourage you, if possible, to remain single. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is that the gift of singleness comes with a gift of contentedness. That, that if you are con- can be content as a single person, you ought, to, you ought to praise the Lord for that gift and use the freedom, the flexibility, and the focus it offers for the glory of God. But if you find yourself in a single situation and you really desire marriage, you ought to pray, Lord, would you provide the right spouse? And know that that spouse must be a believer. Look at verse 39. There in verse 39, Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes. She's got freedom to remarry. Notice, though, only what? In the Lord. So the person you marry has to be a believer. That's Paul's counsel. So Paul looks at the singles and he says, look, here's, here's how you ought to live depending on the gift that God has given to you. But Paul doesn't just offer counsel to those who are single. He also provides counsel to those who are married to an unbeliever. Uh, drop down to verses 12 through, 15, uh, 12 through 16. Uh, Paul writes, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That is, you know, they're free to marry. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And some people, they read these verses and they get all tied up in knots with how Paul begins verse 12. Because there he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And people begin to wonder like, okay, uh, do I have to listen to this part and obey this part? Or is this just Paul's opinion and I can render my judgment on whether I think this is good or not? In fact, some people use this verse to go on and say, hey, this means that the writers of the New Testament can be wrong. Because part of what the writers of the New Testament write is from the Lord, but part of what the writers of the New Testament write is just their opinion. And then they take to the New Testament like Thomas Jefferson did with a pair of scissors and they, they cut out the parts of the Bible they don't particularly like or agree with. And they say, okay, I'm going to believe the parts I like and I'm going to cut out the parts I don't. But that is not an orthodox view of Scripture. Nor does it read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 very well. Because I want you to notice what's happening here in the text. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And that phrase is juxtaposed with what he says in verse 12, where he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. You see that? 
And so what, what Paul is doing is in verse 10, uh, Paul is speaking to those who are married and he is quoting Jesus. Jesus taught about Uh, marriage and divorce while he was on earth. We find that teaching in Matthew chapter 5, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 16. And Paul is in in essence quoting Jesus' teaching. But then in verse 12, Paul is speaking to a different group. Notice verse 10, to the married I give this charge. Then he moves on verse 12. He says, now to the rest I say. And if I were to say, okay, I want to speak to all the married people here. And then I were to turn around and say, okay, now I want to speak to the rest of you. Who would you think I was talking about? If it were me, I'd probably think, oh, he's going to talk to the single people. But that's not who Paul has in mind. Notice in verses 12 through 16, he's talking to the rest of the married people. In other words, verses 10 and 11 are married people who are of the faith. And then in verses 12 through 16, he says, now I want to talk to the rest of you married people who are someone who is a believer that is married to an unbeliever. And in essence, what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus addressed while he was on earth what should happen when two people who are believers are married and how divorce should be handled. But I understand you in Corinth have a a question about a situation Jesus didn't address. And that is, What happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus and they find themselves married to an unbeliever? What are they supposed to do? And then in verse 12, what Paul is doing is he is providing new inspired instruction from the Lord. And so in verse 12, he is essentially closing the quotation marks. And he's saying, look, verse 10, I've been quoting from the teaching of Jesus. Verse 12, he says, close quotation marks. Now this is new instruction, but it is also inspired from the Lord. Now, how do we know that? Well, one reason is drop down to verse 25. There in verse 25, he's going to change categories again. He's going to say, now concerning the betrothed or the engaged. He says, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't teach about this while he was on earth, but... I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, why is his teaching trustworthy? Because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 teaches us that all Scripture is breathed out by who? God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. There's, there's not one word in here that is merely some man's opinion, but... Men wrote when inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit. And so everything in the Bible we have to listen to and obey. There are no parts you get to take scissors to and cut out. And so with that in mind, let's look at what Paul is actually going to teach, what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul in verses 12 through 16. And he says essentially this. He says, look, um, I understand, Corinth, that you would have questions about maybe needing to divorce your spouse if you're a believer and they're not. Because there was an Old Testament precedent. In Ezra chapter 10 and in Haggai chapter 2, God had commanded the people of Israel to divorce their spouse if they were not of the faith. Because there's this clear Old Testament principle that the unclean defiles the clean. 
or the clean is defiled by the unclean. So you, you have a priest and he touches a dead body. He's unclean. You have a priest, he touches a leper. He's unclean. Uh, someone has sex with someone who is an outsider, someone who is not of the faith, that would make them unclean. And so it was necessary for Old Testament Israel to divorce their unbelieving uh, spouses. And so you can imagine, right, the Corinthians are reading the Old Testament and they're saying, whoa, 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 based on that, if I've come to faith in Jesus, shouldn't I divorce my unbelieving spouse? And so Paul steps in and he says, look, Jesus didn't address this because it was before his death and resurrection. So now let me give you clear instruction. And he says, hey, there is this really important event that has happened between the Old Testament and the New. And that is Jesus has stepped into the world. And Jesus, he, he did this amazing thing, for example, in Matthew chapter 8. Where there is a leper and Jesus reaches out and he touches that leper and he heals him. Which is not only an astonishing miracle, it is a history-changing moment. Because up to that point, if anyone were to touch a leper, they were to become unclean. They were to become defiled. But Jesus reaches out and touches this leper. And Jesus isn't made unclean. This leper is made clean. You see, what we're seeing there in Matthew chapter 8 is that Jesus' righteousness is so great. Jesus' righteousness is of such a, a qualitatively different category that he can reach out and he isn't defiled by what is dirty, but he makes the dirty clean. And praise the Lord because that is what he has done for all of us. I mean, we are all sinners. We are unclean. We are unworthy of even being in the presence of God. And yet in his love, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, into the world. And, and Jesus took on flesh and he lived a perfect life and he went to a cross and he died to take the punishment for your sin and mine. And on that cross, all of our sin was put on him. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's the good news of the gospel. Only Jesus could forgive us. Only Jesus could atone for our sins because only Jesus has such a tremendous righteousness that when all of our sin, as great as it is, was put on him, he was not defiled. He was not made unclean and unfit as a sacrifice for sin. Do you see that? And that's why on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead in victory to say, look, I wasn't defiled by you folks. Instead, I have made you clean. And so all of you who would put your hope and your trust in me, you wouldn't trust in your own flimsy and phony righteousness, but you would put your hope and your trust in Jesus. You'd give up living a self-centered, self-absorbed life and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. He says, I will give you my righteousness. And that means forgiveness of sins. It means eternal life. It means Christ dwells in your heart through faith. God the Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you. That is the good news of the gospel. And Paul is saying here in verse 14 that once you understand the gospel, you'll understand that if you're married to an unbeliever, you should not seek to divorce them. Because notice what he says there in verse 14. He says, the unbelieving husband is made holy, made clean because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy, made clean because of her husband. Now, that doesn't mean they're believers. Verse 16 makes that clear. 
But, but what Paul is saying is that the marriage is beautiful and good and pleasing in the sight of God. Because you don't have to separate from your unbelieving spouse because Christ dwells in your heart through faith and his righteousness is so great that your unbelieving spouse will not make you dirty. But verse 16, the good news is Christ's righteousness in you might make them clean. You might be used by the Lord to bring them to faith through your witness. And so his instruction to those who find themselves married to an unbeliever is, hey, don't, don't divorce your spouse. Don't you understand the gospel? That Christ's righteousness is in you, and so you are called to remain where you are and serve as a witness. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're considering a divorce, or you've got someone in your life who is, and, and they're coming to you for counsel I want you to see Paul's instructions here. He's, he's saying, look, uh, whether you're married to a believer or an unbeliever, the instructions are the same. Don't seek to divorce them. Notice verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Now, don't let our Western conception of separation jump into your mind when you read that word separate. That's not what is in mind. Like, we're still married, we're just separated. That's not the idea here. When the word separate is here, it means divorce. And that's clear. Look at verse 11. But if she does, if she separates, what should she do? She should remain what? Unmarried. You see that? So it's not the idea of just, we're still married, we're separated. The idea of separate is divorce. And Paul is saying the wife should not separate divorce from her husband, verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So both men and women are not to seek divorce. But since Paul is pointing back in verses 10 and 11 to the teaching of Jesus, I think it would do us well to remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, that Jesus provides an exception to this kind of blanket statement of do not divorce them. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus' one exception is in cases of sexual immorality. And so, for example, if, if your spouse were to have an affair, uh, Jesus would say in those circumstances, divorce is permissible. It's not required, right? Even in a situation that is that difficult, there is still hope for repentance and reconciliation, restoration. But Jesus would say in a situation where there is sexual immorality like that, divorce is permissible. And so that's the exception we're given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. But then, as we've seen in verse 12, Paul gives us new inspired instruction from the Lord. And he's going to provide a second exception in verse 15. And in verse 15, this exception is not, no longer for sexual immorality. It is for abandonment. Notice there in verse 15, he says, uh, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, you're free to remarry. And you say, well, what is abandonment? Well, the most obvious cases are those in which one spouse, an unbelieving spouse, packs up their things and leaves. They're through with you. They're done. They want out. And Paul is saying in those situations, you don't have to fight it in court. You don't have to 
cry and, and beg them to stay, you're, you're, it's permissible for you to say, okay, uh, I'm going to be hurt by this divorce, but I, I'll, I'll move forward. But many theologians, along with the elders of this church, also believe that there are other ways in which abandonment plays out. Other circumstances that would be permissible for divorce under this abandonment clause. So, for example, in situations of physical abuse. So, if you have one spouse who is physically abusing the other, that spouse may remain in the home. But because of their physical abuse, they are making it where it is no longer safe for their spouse to be with them. You see how that works? So one spouse hasn't left. The unbelieving spouse hasn't left, but they're forcing the believing spouse to leave. And so even though they haven't left, they're forcing that abandonment. Do you understand how that plays out? And so we would say in cases of physical abuse like that, where it is no longer safe for the spouse, the spouses to be together, that divorce is also permissible under this consideration of abandonment. Additionally, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, uh, we're shown that there is also abandonment of responsibilities. So in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, uh, the law makes clear that a husband is required to provide food and clothing and sex to his wife. And if a husband were to cut off his wife, either financially or sexually, she was free to divorce him. And so in the same way, we would say, hey, there, there are ways in which a spouse can abandon a marriage through neglect of responsibility. And one of the things I, I really grieve about the state law of Texas, and I wish, uh, you know, we could get someone in office who would do something about it. But there are no legal protections for a couple that is separated. So, for example, elders of this church, we've had situations where we are working with a couple. Marriage is difficult. They've separated, but they're still married, and we're trying to walk them through that situation. But in the midst of that difficulty, one spouse begins to spend recklessly. And in the state of Texas, there's no financial protection. And so whatever that spouse spends, even though they're separated, the other spouse is on the hook for it. And so there have been circumstances here where the elders have walked with a couple for some time and one spouse through their just reckless spending, we've had to turn to the other and say, hey, um, we think under the given circumstances, it would be permissible in the eyes of the Lord for you to move forward with divorce so that you and your children are not faced with financial ruin. Um, and, and I want to be really clear, those circumstances are really difficult. We like for everything to be black and white, and it is not always black and white. And you are, if you find yourself in that situation, you're going to struggle to see things clearly through the fog of failed promises in marriage. But that's why God has given you and me elders and pastors who are there to shepherd us. And so I would just encourage you, if, if your marriage is in a difficult place, Come to the elders and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. Will you walk me and my spouse through this situation? If your spouse is unwilling to seek pastoral counsel, at least you've got some. And the beauty of pastoral counsel and authority is if you don't do that, you're going to be left wondering the rest of your life, did I make the right decision? Is God upset that I, that I parachuted out of this relationship? But when you come and you receive pastoral 
pastoral authority. This is the beauty of authority. And I know we hate authority in our culture today, but the beauty of biblical authority is when you come to the pastors and you say, hey, here's the situation, and you submit to their leadership, guess what? We're then on the hook. The Bible teaches one day we're going to have to stand before the Lord and we're going to have to give an account. And so if you submit to what we say, guess what? Now we're on the hook and not you. That's the beauty of submission to authority. And so if, if you're in that place this morning, I would just encourage you to, to seek pastoral counsel. But some of you, some of you, you've already gone through that process. You've been divorced. And you're here this morning and you're wondering, okay, what do I do? You know, what, is, what does God desire of me that I would live in a way that's pleasing to him? And I want you to see in the text that it depends on which category you fall into. Uh, the first category are those who've had a divorce for biblical reasons. So if your divorce happened on biblical grounds, there was sexual immorality, there was abandonment, clear abandonment in the, in the relationship, then the Apostle Paul would say, hey, you're free to remarry. Uh, notice uh, verse 15. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You can remarry. Only it's got to be a believer, right? Verse 39, in the Lord. But if you had a divorce for unbiblical reasons, so it was a situation where you say, man, I'm just not in love with that person anymore. You know, there's not that same romantic spark. Or, you know, it's just we're fighting all the time. You know, there's there's some other reason Difficult situation in the marriage, but an unbiblical reason for the divorce. Notice verses 10 and 11. What what Paul is going to say is, if that's the situation you find yourself in, verse 11, if she does, if she does divorce, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So if you were divorced for non-biblical grounds, you should remain single or remarry your former spouse. Those are the options available. If you're here this morning and you say, well, Aaron, I, I wish I would have known that because I was divorced for unbiblical reasons and I've already remarried. Like, what do I do? Well, don't get another divorce. <laughs> okay, God doesn't delight in divorce and you won't fix the, the mistake in the past by making another one in the present. And so the Lord would have you to remain where you are and embrace the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ and endeavor to live in a way that pleases him in your present relationship. Because we vow in marriage till death do us part. But as we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus vows something greater still, doesn't he? He says, my death ensures that we shall never part. And that's... That's why I can say with the Apostle Paul, I am sure of this, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because his, his righteousness is so great that he, he isn't defiled by what is dirty, but he makes the dirty sinners like you and me clean. 
Jesus doesn't have to draw back and keep his distance from us. Jesus aggressively closes the distance in order to reach out and cleanse us. And so it doesn't matter how how stained your past is. It doesn't matter how dirty you may feel this morning, how unworthy of God's love. What I want you to hear is that the righteousness of Jesus is so great that you cannot stain him. And he will not shy away from you, but he will reach out in love to cleanse you and make you new if you would simply put your hope and your trust in him today. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those here this morning who, uh, Lord, long for a spouse. I pray that, God, you would help them not to grow impatient and to, to make poor decisions. But, Father, that you would grant them to wait on your provision and your timing. Pray for those who find themselves in a, in a difficult marriage this morning. One where they wake up every day weighed down just from the anxieties and pressures that are placed upon them because of their spouse. Lord, I pray that they would know that your promise in Psalm 34, 18 is true, that you are near to the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. Father, that you would give them strength to persevere in love, in their marriage. Father, that when they are reviled, they would not revile in return. Father, that as much as it depends upon them, they would live at peace with all men. Lord, I pray for those who who need pastoral counsel, that you would give them the courage to seek it. I pray for our Titus women as they uh, seek to come alongside women who are hurting and in difficult places to encourage them and strengthen their hand in the Lord. And Lord, I pray for those who are gathered here this morning and they feel the weight of their sin. Lord, I pray that they would feel and taste the enormity of your love and grace. That even as I am speaking and praying right now, that is a gift of your Holy Spirit, Father, that they would feel in a very tangible sense, Lord, your Spirit come and lift that burden off of their shoulders and give them a new heart of faith. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.